Let's pray. As we open up the word, let's ask the Lord to really move and stir our hearts. Holy Father, I, I, you're such a, a good God. You're so incredible. Lord, when I study your word, I'm just in awe. At times, I'm perplexed. At times, I tremble in fear. At times, I jump in joy. For you make yourself known to us as you reveal your glory in a consuming fire that nothing impure can stand before you. And yet, through the work of Jesus Christ and the atoning work he's accomplished and the righteousness that he's imputed upon us, somehow you accept us and we're allowed to stand in your presence and we're allowed to bring our fears and our concerns and our burdens at your feet and you relate to us as our Father and you love us and you care for us and you invite us in. It's just overwhelming to think about it. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, can you overwhelm us with your word? Can this Sunday just not be another Sunday of us proclaiming the gospel, but can we be hit by it and overwhelmed by it? Can those who are blind and dead in their sins, can you open up their eyes and radically transform them? Can you speak to us and minister to our hearts? Can you stir our affections for you? Can you help us to walk in faith that leads to joyful obedience? Lord, can you help me to, to proclaim your truth, proclaim your word? in a way that brings glory to you and honors you. Please, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, move and open up our eyes. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John. Uh, we're in John chapter 9 as we're continuing our series, Walking Through the Gospel of John. Now remember, what John is trying to accomplish in his gospel is he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and also how Jesus is going to receive glory from the Father. And his ultimate purpose, the very reason why he wrote his gospel, is to invite us in so that we can believe and have life in his name. Now, now, last week, we saw how Jesus had a confrontation with the religious leaders, with the Jews, who just had a hard time to believe Jesus. And in a sense, Jesus kind of gave them the reasons for their unbelief. And the reason why they were unable to believe Jesus is because they were unable to hear and obey his word. And Jesus, in a very harsh way, in a sense, tells them that they are not children of God, but rather children of the devil, and they're so characterized by their devil that their native language is lying. So because they are liars, they are unable to accept the truth because it is truth. And when their theological arguments were unable to stand up against Jesus, they turned to personal abuse. In the last statement that Jesus made, he stood up and he declared that before Abraham was, I am. And really what he did in it, Jesus was evoking the covenant name of God. 
Like what Jesus was really declaring about himself is that he was the eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, covenant-keeping God that has revealed himself to Moses and to the Israelites. And what they should have done is they should have responded in worship, but instead they picked up stones and wanting to kill him. And so now we get to chapter 9, and chapter 9 really centers on a single event. And what Jesus does is he gives sight to a man born blind. And in this miracle or in the sign, really what we see is we see a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so what I want to do is we're only going to look at 13 verses. I want to show you how Jesus opens up the eyes of this blind man. And then for our application, I want to show you the beautiful truths of the gospel. So let's look at the text first. Let's unpack it a little bit. And then at the very end, we'll talk about application as we see a picture of the gospel. Uh, Look at John chapter 9, verse 1. It says this. As he was passing by... He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now, now let's stop here and unpack this for a little bit. Notice that John does not indicate for us the time nor the place where this took place. All he tells us is as he was passing by. So we don't know this information, but what we do know is that chapter 9 finds itself between chapter 8 and chapter 10. I know this is mind-boggling just to think about it, okay? But the reality of it is, the reason I'm bringing it up is because what happens in chapter 8? In chapter 8, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and chapter 10 is the Feast of Dedications, which means, and they're only a couple months apart, which means that since chapter 9 falls in the middle, this is happening in Jerusalem during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication. John also tells us that Jesus comes and sees a man that is blind from birth. He does not tell us anything else. He doesn't tell us why this man was blind from birth. He doesn't even tell us how Jesus came to know that this man was blind from birth. The only thing that he indicates is here was a man that was blind from birth. And the reason he's indicating it to us is because that means it's important. There's a significance in it. And so the disciples who sees this man that is blind from birth automatically assumes the reason for this man's blindness. Immediately they assume that because of this man's suffering, there is sin involved. Now on one hand, we can say in a sense they are, they are correct because all sin is a result, all, all suffering is a result of sin. Why did suffering enter into the world? Because of sin. In a sense, we've rebelled against the Lord. But to always connect suffering to a personal sin of an individual or the personal sin of that person who they are related to, that's not always the case. And Jesus makes this clear. And he answers his disciples, neither. And then he says, 
This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is, this suffering exists. Why? So that God's work may be displayed. Another way of looking at it is so that God will be glorified. Now, when you think about that from the beginning, it in a sense seems perplexing. Like, why would God allow suffering so that he can be glorified? Like, what in the world is this all about? But if we understand that all suffering is from the Lord and that suffering, in a sense, exists to bring glory to God, what that does and what that understanding of that truth does, it transforms our perspective of suffering. Rather than seeing suffering as punishment, we see now suffering serves a purpose. And what's that purpose? That purpose is so that God's work will be displayed, that in a sense that God will be glorified because God is in control of suffering. And so now we look at suffering by understanding this truth. We no longer see suffering as an unfortunate event that took place because of sin. We don't see suffering as simply, hey, God is punishing me because of my rebellion and sin. But now we see suffering as, hey, there is a purpose behind the suffering. God is doing something about it for his glory. And that kind of helps me, in a sense, understand suffering. And this is what's going on in this passage. And, and we even say, see a, a, a wonderful biblical example of this uh, when it comes to suffering. That not only is that suffering because of sin, but that suffering is also to display God's work. Uh, think about Exodus. Think about the ten plagues. Why did God plague Egypt with these ten plagues? First of all, because why? Pharaoh was rebellious. He did not want to let God's people go. And so why did God pour the plagues on Egypt? Because of their sin, because of their rebellion. But as you read through the plagues, why else is God doing this? So that he could display his glory and the Egyptians will see that he is God and there is no one like him. And so now we see suffering, this dual purpose of, yes, it's because of sin in general, but also so that God could display his work and declare his glory. And the same, in a sense, for this man born blind. Was it because of sin in general? Absolutely. If there was no sin, there would be no blindness. But also, why was he blind? So that God could display his work and display his glory. Let's move on. Jesus continues. Look at verse 4. He says, We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, now I'll be honest with you. If you read the whole passage, you're kind of thinking, these verses are, in a sense, out of place. Like, let's skip over this sentence, and let's just go straight into the miracle. But the reason why these two sentences are included, obviously because Jesus says them, because there is a purpose and a significance to it. In other words, what, what Jesus is saying and alluding to is there is an urgency in performing the work of God as long as it is day. 
That means while Jesus is still with them, because he is the light of the world, there's a sense of urgency that we need to get the work of God done. Now, what it does not mean is Jesus stops being the light of the world after his death, resurrection, and his ascension. But rather what it means in our text is that that light, Jesus, shines brightly while he is still on earth with his disciples to the moment of his glorification. And so while he's on this earth being the light of the world, he's exposing darkness, he is judging the world and also saving the world. And his disciples are enjoying the light as they are walking with the light of the world. And when Jesus is arrested, when Jesus is killed and buried, what happens? Darkness comes in. And not just for the world, but also, in a sense, for his disciples. Because what did his, how did his disciples respond to this darkness? They betrayed him, they denied him, and they abandoned him. And when night descends, what does Jesus say? No one can do the work. And when Jesus was crucified, in a sense, his disciples, they were in limbo. They were ashamed of themselves because they told Jesus, we would never do this. We will be with you through thick and thin. They're disappointed in themselves. And now, because of their Messiah, their Savior, their rabbi that was dead, they felt like they had no direction. They were in limbo. So what did they do? They ended up going back to their occupation, fishing, because they were disappointed. And what Jesus is saying, in a sense, he understands that he's going to be with them only for a little bit. And then he'll be taken away. And so what he is saying now, there is much work for us to do while it's still day, while I'm still here with you. And even in chapter 10, we're going to see that Jesus has to bring in more sheep from another pen. And so the reason why these verses are important, why I don't want to skip over these verses and go straight into the miracle, because what these verses are showing us, that this is not just some random event. It's not some random miracle, but rather this serves a purpose. Because Jesus, who is sent from God, is doing the work of the Father. He is the light of the world to those who are living in darkness. And his life on earth brought light to those who believed. And when he will depart, it will will bring in the night to those who refuse to believe. And their eyes that are already shut will even be more shut. But we'll talk about that next week. Jesus says there's a lot of work to do while I'm still here. Look at the miracle or the sign that Jesus performed. Look at verse 6. It says, after he said these things... He spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left wash and came back seen. So after Jesus had declared that he is the light of the world, now he proceeds to illustrate the point by giving this man who was born blind light. In other words, what he's doing is he's doing the work of God because he was sent by God. 
And unlike other miracles, who initiates everything? Jesus does. The blind man, he simply goes on doing his business. Later on, we'll find that he is a beggar and he begs as usual. And now what we see is this blind man becomes the object of divine mercy and later on divine revelation. And what does Jesus do? He, he takes mud packs with saliva, put it on this man's eyes, and he sends him off to go wash it. Now I know what y'all are thinking. What's the significance of the mud pack and the saliva? I have really bad news for you. I don't know. Uh, there are so many theories out there that I have concluded it's actually unproductive for us to explore all of these different theories because what will happen is we will miss the point of what actually is going on. So I don't know. Let's move on for our benefit. All we know is that after he applied this mud pack on this man's eyes, he told him to go wash it off in the pool of Shalom. Now, John indicates for us what this name of the pool means. It means sent. And the reason he indicates it for us, because there's significance, there's importance. Who is the supremely sent one? Jesus is. Jesus, who's the supremely sent one, who is from the Father and was sent, he goes now and sends this man to go wash in the pool of sent. But also in Isaiah 8, verse 6, the people rejected the water of Shalom. And later on, they will reject Jesus. And also the water ritual in the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 8, where did they get that water from? From the pool of Siloam. But here's what's more important. This initiative has been entirely Jesus. The sent one. And now the man who still have not seen Jesus because, his blind, because he is blind, he obeys and he washes and he comes home seeing. Now, John knows and we know that this man, the miracle did, was, did not, was not performed because of his obedience. His eyes were not opened because of his obedience. That's not where the power came from. Where did the power come from? It came from Jesus. And what we're going to see in our story is now Jesus drops off completely for the rest of the chapter and he appears back in verse 35. But really the focus now of the rest of the chapter is the healed one. And yet this man, this healed one, only becomes the occasion for the discussion. But what is the very subject of the discussion throughout this chapter is Jesus. But look at how his neighbors responded to this healing. Look at verse 8 here. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. See, now we see what did he do for a living? He was a beggar, said. Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said he's the one. Others were saying no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. So again, we find a little bit more out about this man born blind. What did he do for a living? He was a beggar. 
Because if you're born blind, the only thing you can do to make ends meet was to beg. And he was such a regular that everybody knows here is the blind man begging. And when they saw him and his eyes opened up, some of them thought it's easier to believe that a lookalike, somebody who looks like him, talks like him, acts like him, replaced him, than his eyes could actually be opened up. And the only thing this blind man does is he regurgitates the facts. He says, look, it is me. All I can tell you, this man called Jesus, I've never seen him i don't know anything about him all i know is you call him jesus what he did is he made mud packs put it on my eyes he told me to go to the pool of salome and wash and all i can tell you now is i can see really he's just regurgitating the facts he knows little about who jesus is and the theological implications of what actually happened. And naturally, they're saying, well, where is he? And how did the man respond? I don't know. I have no idea. So, so let's stop here and talk about application. I do think that this story, this miracle, or really better yet, this sign, has significance. And the reason why I say that is because even, I want to say John chapter 20, where he kind of tells us the purpose of his books. He said, um, I did not record all the miracles and all the things that Jesus did and said, because that would not even all the books in the world will be able to contain it. So which means that John picked the story out for a purpose. And what's the purpose of John? Why is he writing his gospel? Because he wants to invite people in to believe and have life in the name of Jesus. So which means that he picked out the story because this is more than a story. This is more than just some random miracle. But rather it is a sign with symbolisms and significance. And I really think this sign is significant and symbolizes some beautiful truths of the gospel is it gives us a picture of the gospel so let me show you the picture in this story if you're taking notes the very first picture of the gospel that we see is the spiritual condition the spiritual condition what does john tell us about this story not only was this man blind but he was Born blind, which indicates to us the spiritual condition that we have been born with. And even though just like this man who was born blind, his condition was a result of sin in general, maybe not sin from him or sin from his parents, but sin in general, he was born blind so that God could display his glory and do his work in his life. And that's the same reason for our spiritual condition. Because of our spiritual condition that we are born with, not because of our personal sin, but rather because of sin in general, the reason we have our spiritual condition is so that God can do a work in us. 
And that spiritual condition that we have is that we are blind, that we live in darkness, that we are dead and our trespasses and sin. And the Bible even calls us children under wrath. Last week we learned that we are children of the devil. And just like this, born man, this man who was born blind was unable to see, he was helpless to do anything about his condition. We in our spiritual condition find ourselves helpless, unable to see, unable to move from the darkness to the light, unable to become alive as we are dead in our sins. And the only thing that we can do is continue in our condition as blind, poor, spiritual beggars. And just like this blind man who was born blind simply accepted his fate. This is my condition. This is who I am. There's nothing I can do about it other than trying to make the best of it. That's also true for many of us in our spiritual condition. This is just who I am. This is just my condition. There's nothing I can do about it, so let me try to make the best out of it. But the reality of it is, even though you develop the other senses, and you, even though you might get by in life, what's still the problem? You're still in darkness. You're still under wrath. You're still a child of the devil. You are still blind. And this is what we see for this man. And this is what we see the picture of the gospel for us. The second truth, if you're taking notes, the picture of the gospel is we see the divine initiative of God. We see divine initiative. What is one thing the man never did? Did he ask for healing? No, he never asked for healing. And, and, and I'm just speculating here, but I, I think I might be on safe grounds here. He didn't ask for healing. But more than likely, he probably wasn't the only beggar. He was probably not the only one who was in need. He probably wasn't the only one who needed a healing. Yet out of all the poor spiritual beggars that Jesus saw, out of all the blind people and all the ones that needed healing, Jesus picked them. And he chose him. And the question is, why in the world did Jesus choose to heal this man? And the answer is, we don't know. We honestly don't know. But what we do know is that he was chosen for what? So that God can display his work in this man's life. In other words, he was chosen by God's divine mercy and grace there's nothing he did other than continue in his spirit in his poor blind condition of begging and without jesus's divine initiative of choosing him and healing him he would continue in on his fate and a picture of the gospel salvation begins with who begins with God. It begins with God's divine initiative. 
in displaying His mercy and His grace for us. Because the reality of it is, for many of us, we've accepted our condition. We've just accepted this is what life is all about. We're continuing to stumble in darkness. For many of us, we've lived in darkness for so long, we've just kind of got used to it because we don't even know what light is, even if it appears before us because we've become so used to our condition. It's like the illustration of you keep an animal in a cage his entire life, and the second you open up the gate, what happens? He remains there. Why? Because that's the only thing he knows. He doesn't know any better. And because of our spiritual condition, this is us. And yet for many of us, we never asked for healing. We never asked to be saved. And yet what did God do? He sent his son, the light of the world, to bring us light and by opening up our eyes and healing us from our spiritual condition. He lived a life we could not live and he died a death we were supposed to die. And we never asked him to do it because we were in the crowd shouting, crucify, crucify crucify him and here's what we have to understand the gospel doesn't begin with you salvation does not begin with you salvation begins with god's divine initiative and without it we will remain in our spiritual condition just like we see in this story the, sec- the third thing, if you're taking notes, we see a picture of the gospel, is we see the work of Jesus. We see the work of Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples that we must do the works of him who sent me. Like, like think about this. In this context of what Jesus was saying is this man needs to be healed. But what was the ultimate work of Jesus? What was the purpose of why Jesus came? The cross of Christ, the very purpose, the ultimate work of Jesus, the reason why he was sent is to go to the cross. He came not to heal us, not to make us better. He came to die. And it is through his death that we will be healed. And just like this man's eyes were open, not because of the mud pack, not because he washed in the pool of Shalom, but rather his eyes were open because of the power and work of Jesus Christ. It's the very same truth for us. Our eyes are open, not because we've done anything, but rather because of the work of Jesus on the cross. The work that he's accomplished for us is sufficient and complete. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that opens up our eyes, regenerates us, and makes us new. The fourth picture of the gospel, not only do we see our spiritual condition, the divine initiative, the work of Jesus, but we also now see the response of faith. We see the response of faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I do find it very interesting that Jesus did not heal this man with a word. Like, like, think about it. Like, Jesus could have just simply said, see. 
Like if he spoke creation into existence, if he tells Lazarus who is dead to get up and walk out of there, why could he not have said to the man born blind, hey, your eyes are open. But rather, what does he do? He takes mud and saliva, mix it together, packs it on this man's eyes. And then with the word, he tells them, go and wash yourself. Go wash it off. Which, what does that mean? That means this blind man had to trust the word of Jesus. He had to believe that what Jesus is saying is true. And in faith that led to obedience, had to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. And we know it's not because of his faith or his obedience that he is healed, but rather because of the power and work of Jesus that he is healed. But he had to respond in faith. He had to believe that who Jesus is and what he says is true, that if he does it, he will be healed. And this is true for us. Just like this blind man who was sent to go and wash and are called to trust the word of Jesus, so we are called to respond in faith and trust the word of Jesus. In other words, we have to trust that who Jesus says about himself is true, that the work on the cross on our behalf is sufficient, that it is enough. There's nothing that we need to do to add to it. That we need to trust that God would accept us, not because of our works, but because of the work of Jesus on the cross. That our eyes will be opened, that somehow we will be transferred from darkness into light, from dead to being alive, from sinners to saints, from children of wrath to children of God, because of the work of Jesus. But unfortunately, what many of us do, Jesus go, tells us to go and wash. But we don't. Why? Because we're thinking, this is stupid. How is this going to open up my eyes? How is this going to make me new? And so we take the mud pack and we throw it on the ground. Or what we try to do is, well, let me add more mud to it. Let me get some special water to it because clearly what he tells me to do is not enough because the work he has done for me is not sufficient because I need to make sure that this work is more than sufficient. And really, both response is a response of unbelief. Both of them is a rejection of Jesus. In a sense, this man born blind, if he did not obey, if he did not respond in faith and trust the word of Jesus, that what he says is true, wouldn't have happened. But he responded in faith. And our response to the gospel can only be a response of faith. It is not our response that saves us. It is Jesus that saves us. But we cling to that saving work of Jesus and the word of Jesus and faith, believing that what he has done will be enough for us. The last witness, if the last uh, picture, if you're taking notes of the gospel, we see the witness 
the witness. This blind man from birth could now see. His transformation was so evident that even his neighbors did not recognize him. They said, clearly he looks like that guy, clearly he acts like that guy, clearly he talks like that guy, but there is no way that it is that guy. And what does he say? Hey, it is me. And even though he doesn't understand everything that took place in his life, even though he did not understand the significance, what does he understand? It is this man named Jesus who have healed me. I don't know how. All I know is this is what he did, and I responded in faith and obedience, and now I stand before you, no longer a poor, spiritual, blind beggar, but now I stand before you as a man that can see. And this is true for us. The result of our salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us leads to such a transformation and is so evident that even technically our neighbors and our family members must be unable to recognize it and say, clearly, he looks like him, he talks like him, and in a sense, his behavior, his mannerisms is not like, is like him. But this can't be him. And what is our call after seeing sight is to insist it is me. I don't know how. All I can tell you is he has saved me. He's opened up my eyes. He's taken me out of darkness into his light. I don't understand all of the theological implications of Jesus and the significance of what Jesus has done, but I can tell you I was blind, but now I can see. What a beautiful picture of the gospel in this story. And so there are some truths I want you to meditate on. Some questions I want you to ask yourself. Like, do you recognize your spiritual condition? Or are you so used to the condition that you've lived in that you've just kind of made it by and have just accepted your fate? Have you trusted in the power and saving work of Jesus? Or are you just walking around with that mud pack on your eyes trying to add to it where you're throwing it down thinking that this is dumb. I need a better salvation. Are you believing that what he's done for you on the cross is sufficient? That God will accept you not because of your behavior or your performance but because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. And if you've responded in faith, like, do your neighbors recognize you? Have they seen the transformation in your life? Are you bearing witness to the incredible work that Jesus has done in your life? So before we get to the table, I just want to give you a moment to reflect on these questions.
So go ahead, just, just take a moment, reflect on these questions. I'll, I'll ask them again as you think about it. Do you recognize your spiritual condition? Or have you just accepted your fate of walking in darkness and being a blind, poor beggar? Have you trusted in the work and power of Jesus? Or are you still walking with mud pack on your eyes and unbelief, thinking that the work and power of Jesus is insufficient for you? Another way of looking at it, are you looking to Christ for salvation or are you looking to self? Are you saying, I need to do better, or are you saying that what he's done for me is enough? Are you saying that I need to fix my life, or are you saying, I need Jesus, and I need to look to him, trust him, and rest in him? And if you have trusted Jesus in his power and his work, do your neighbors recognize you? Have they seen the transformation in your life? Are they seeing the spiritual fruit of love, peace, joy, patience, And maybe for some, some of you this morning, maybe it's time for you to trust Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit right now to help you reveal your spiritual condition. Help the Lord to ask the Lord to help you to trust in Him that what He's done for you is enough. To surrender your life, to respond in faith that leads to obedience. And then even maybe ask the Lord to help you to have the, the, the boldness to invite others to walk with you, to help you in the process. Let me pray for us, and then we get to sit at the table. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your Son. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you faithfully have done the work of the Father that in our spiritual condition, you initiated by your divine mercy and grace, and through your work on the cross, you accomplished our salvation. Can you help us to respond in faith? Can you help us to look to you and trust you? Can you help us to bear witness to you? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like as we get to sit at the table...
Think about the table. The, the table is another illustration of the wonderful gospel. It reminds us of our spiritual condition. In a sense, we do not get to sit at the table because we're good people. We do not get to sit at the table because we're awesome and we had a great week and I finally have qualified myself to be able to sit with God and his people. No, we get to sit at the table because of what Christ has done. And the only thing we've done, we simply have received the wonderful blessing of what he has given us. And even in our repentance, we find out in Scripture that repentance is a gift from God. And what's at this table is a reminder of why we get to sit at the table. It's not pictures of ourselves. It's not a list of our performances. But rather, it is the body and blood of Jesus. It is reminding us that he has accomplished our salvation. And what that does is, first of all, it reminds us of who he is and what he's done. But then second of all, it also gives us assurance. Because how many of you feel like the Lord is not going to accept you because of your bad performance? And then I'm telling you, no, come and sit at the table because why do you get to sit? Why does the Lord accept you? Not because of your performance, but because of what Christ has done for you. And so you trust Him. You look to Him that as you eat the bread, as you drink the wine, you're reminded His body was given to me. His blood was shed for me. And the covenant that I've I've entered into with God is a covenant of blood, but not my blood. His blood, which means it is an eternal covenant that has been ratified by a wonderful, powerful blood of Jesus. And so this is why we get to sit at this table. So if you've responded in faith, if you're trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then come. But if you refuse to believe, if you're unrepentant of your sin, you don't want to look to Him, don't want to trust Him because you're so busy focusing on yourself of I need to do better, I need to do more, then you're still walking around with your mud pack. You're not believing that what he's done for you is sufficient, then simply abstain from it. This doesn't mean anything then for you. But for those who have trusted, it means everything. For our hope is in Jesus. Our confidence is in Jesus. And we come as the people of God, resting in the wonderful work of our Lord and Savior. And so as we distribute these elements... Meditate upon these truths, the wonderful assurance that you have in Christ and the wonderful work that he has accomplished for you. Meditate and then let's go ahead and distribute these elements. Did everybody receive the elements? What wonderful assurance that we have that we are the objects of God's divine mercy and grace, that he sent his son to live a life we could not live and to die the death we were supposed to die. 
In Jesus accomplishing this, he secured our salvation as he satisfied the wrath of God, paid for our sins in full, so that we can be redeemed, brought out of slavery, and be reconciled to God as his sons and his daughters. 